Gittleman here for the First Lady of Nutrition podcast, and today I'm exceedingly excited and very honored because if there was a Hall of Fame for the most innovative of all the integrative doctors in our country today, my guest would be at the top of the list. He's none other than Dr. Leo Galland, who consistently is repeatedly listed in America's top doctors and leading physicians of the world. And for the past year, he has focused on natural approaches to prevention and mitigation of COVID-19. So welcome, 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 Dr. Galland. Well, it's so nice to be talking with you, and as always, and it's been great collaborating with you in the past. Yes, you and I knew each other because we were involved with worms way back when. Right, right. Yeah, it started with parasites. It all started with parasites. Adios amoebas, as, a, they, as I like to say. <laughs> okay. But now on to bigger and more uh, crucial things in terms of what's happening with COVID-19. So you have some very interesting strategies to control the virus by boosting immunity and something, some things that I've never heard before. So can you talk to us a little bit about the biology of COVID-19 as opposed to the biology of other viruses? Um, sure. Uh, um, and just by way of background, last January, when I realized that this virus the SARS-CoV-2 virus was spreading outside China. I knew that a lot of my patients were going to have questions about it. And so that's the point where I started um, digging into the emerging research on this virus and looking at other coronaviruses um, and have uh, intensively followed the research on a daily basis since then. I never really planned on going very public with anything. I just wanted to be able to provide information to my patients and answer their questions. But it, it's very soon became clear that there were unique aspects to this virus and that they accounted for many of the diverse um, and complex clinical problems that, that occurred as a result of infection. Um, and that they suggested um, fairly unique approaches to prevention and treatment. Um, and um, as I started to put my thoughts together, and um, I, I, I put a document together, which is on my website. Um, it's drgallon.com, and it's just called Coron Coronavirus Guidebook. Um, and I update it periodically. Uh, and I started doing it as a way of organizing my thoughts and what I was reading, uh, and then trying to um, make it presentable so that people who are not scientists um, could follow what the science is showing. And one of the things that has really compelled me to keep updating it is that there has been a lot of false information and misinformation that has circulated, mm. um, some on a technical level, um, some of it on a broader level. And um, and so I have wanted to address uh, that kind of misinformation and, and the misinformation has been all over the place, including, um, you know, just the way the media picks up certain aspects of it. So the most important, the central part of understanding COVID-19 is 
understanding how the virus gets into your cells and what happens as a result of that. And the centerpiece of viral entry into human cells is an enzyme, a human enzyme called ACE2, that stands for angiotensin converting enzyme 2, which has been called the cellular receptor for the virus. Um, now, there may be some other ways in which the virus can get into cells, but under almost all cl clinically relevant circumstances, it is, um, it's ACE2 is the gateway. And so when I first read this, I thought, hmm, okay, well, is there a way to block ACE2? Well, I, and I quickly realized I don't want to block ACE2 because it is a vitally important enzyme. And what we want to do is protect ACE2. Oh. And that's, that is where the first misunderstanding and controversy occurred. And, and it unfortunately hasn't exactly gone away. But in the early months of the pandemic, there was this idea that kept um, surfacing that um, an excess that an excess of ACE2 was the reason that some people got sicker than others. It's like there were more doors for the virus to get into the cell. That's been proved to be totally wrong. Um, but it still appears in various ways in different research papers, um, mostly because there are scientists who really don't understand the vital role of ACE2, of ACE2 in preserving health. And in fact, when this virus gets into your cells by attaching to ACE2, the ACE2 is destroyed. And virtually all of the complications of COVID-19 can be traced back to destruction of ACE2. Let me just ask you a quick question here. Is, are there any other viruses? Is this uniquely attached to that vital enzyme ACE2? Are there other viruses that also attach? Or is that what makes this different and a little bit more lethal? The, the SARS virus also used ACE2 as its cellular receptor. And um, it's in, so SARS stands for um, a severe acute respiratory syndrome. That was a virus that made a lot of people very frightened back in 2003 and 2004. It also started in China. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I remember at the time, we were all kind of panicked if uh, there were some SARS cases in Toronto and how far is this going to spread? SARS infected 7,000 people in the world and killed 800. Mm. I mean, you know, it was trivial compared to what SARS-CoV-2 has done, um, which is to, um, you know, kill, kill tens of millions. And the, however, on an individual basis, SARS, um, the original virus, the SARS virus, was much more lethal than the SARS-CoV-2 virus. That is, um, there was the death rate was almost 10 percent. With this, it's um, under 1 percent. Um, so the difference between these two viruses, with, which both use ACE2 to enter cells, is that um, the SARS virus was not highly transmissible, but it was very deadly. This particular virus is several times deadlier than the flu um, in 
every setting in which it's been studied, um, but much less deadly than the SARS virus, um, but very, very highly infectious. And in fact, as it continues to mutate, the mutations increase the infectiousness of the virus. Now that leads to some steps. Uh, if you understand why that happens, it leads to some preventive measures and even some treatment measures. Um, what the, the predominant mutation that separates SARS from SARS-CoV-2 is a mutation in a part of uh, this complex called the spike protein. So let me just say that, as I'm sure the spike protein is pretty famous these days, so I'm sure most um, people listening to the podcast know that in order for this virus to get into your cells, the viral spike protein, we'll call it the S protein, has to attach to the lining of the cells. And um, before the spike protein attaches to ACE2, there are two or three other steps that occur. Um, and it is possible to address those steps in order to block viral attachment and prevent the virus from even getting um, attached to ACE2. Once the virus attaches to ACE2, there is another enzyme, which is also part of the cell membrane, called Tempris2, that then destroys ACE2 and also splits the S protein in half um, so that um, the S protein, so that the virus is now able to fuse with the membrane of the cell and very rapidly enter the cell. Mm. So there is this multi-step process. The first step in the process is actually electrical. And mm. this is where the, muta the, the key mutation that created this pandemic um, occurred. It is the addition to the S protein of two arginine molecules. Now, arginine is an amino acid mm -hmm. and it has a very strong positive charge. Mm -hmm. It's what's called a highly alkaline or basic amino acid. So there is this area on the S protein that is a polyarginine area. That is the key mutation that allowed this virus to become so infectious because the outside of the cells has an acidic charge. All of your cells have a coating on them called the glycocalyx, which is somewhat acidic in its charge. And a lot of that acidity is due to the presence of molecules called heparin sulfates. And the, the, this, these polyarginine, polyarginine residues in the S protein lock on to heparin sulfate um, very rapidly and very tight, virtually irreversibly. And they hold the virus in place. So it's not slipping off the cells. It's like right on the cells. The strength of that charge is about 10 times the strength of the average um, bioelectrical charge um, in the body. Uh, then once it's being held in place, there's an, another, uh, another enzyme that your cells make called furin, F-U-R-I-N. Mm -hmm. It cuts the spike protein into two segments, S1 and S2. And 
Furin, the, the site that's cleaved by furin called the furin cleavage site is essentially the same as the site that is bound to heparin, the heparin binding site. So you have um, this strong positive charge on the S protein that sets up the, um, the ability of the virus to be attached to the cells, split by furin. And that furin split, and this is something that's very different from the original SARS virus, that cleavage by furin is necessary for the virus, for this particular virus, to then bind strongly to ACE2. So you have this, these three steps, one right after the other. Um, Can I backtrack with you for just a minute? Sure. Who is most susceptible to a weak ACE2? Are there certain conditions uh, that make you more genetically or environmentally uh, weakened in some respects? Such a good question, Anne Louise. Yeah, the people that are most susceptible um, because their ACE2 is weak are exactly the same people who get the sickest with this virus. Diabetics people with obesity, people with hypertension, depending on how their hypertension is being treated. Um, there is a decline in cellular ACE2 activity in people who have um, coronary artery disease, hardening of the arteries, in people who age. Um, but ACE2 is, very, uh, um, ACE2 is very complex because it it is part of the body's restorative mechanism. And, and you really have to be able to think four-dimensionally to understand ACE2. ACE2 changes over time. It, the important aspects of ACE2 are those functions that it performs on the cell membrane. There is a big disconnect between the amount of ACE2 that circulates in plasma and that circulates in the blood that's been split off from the cell membrane, or even the amount of ACE2 activity that's being um, promoted by genes or the, the amount of ACE2 molecules being promoted by genes. You can have, when, when your body is stressed, the level of ACE2 in blood goes up, uh, circulating in blood. The, the genes that create ACE2 start working overtime. But that doesn't mean that you have more ACE2 activity on the cell membrane. You might actually have less ACE2 activity, which is, and, and often do, because there are so many things that are destroying ACE2, and ACE2 has to work overtime uh, to combat a lack of oxygen or free radical damage um, or numerous other stresses that occur in the body. Um, so, my strategy for prevention, my number one strategy is let's find ways to improve the activity of ACE2. Um, and what are some of the things that do that? Okay, well, first of all, um, um, being, not being, let's look at the things that interfere with it. Being overweight interferes with it. High blood sugar interferes with it. Improving your blood sugar, improving your weight, being physically active improves it. And although aerobic exercise has a positive effect, high intensity training is even better. Mm. 
Um, from a dietary perspective, um, it appears as if a high polyphenol diet is good, whereas a high fructose diet is not is not good. Um, <laughs> and so, um, you know, things like high fructose corn syrup. I mean, most people in the U.S. are not getting their high fructose intake from eating too many apples. They're getting their high fructose intake from high fructose corn syrup. Right. Um, and yeah, so avoid a lot of the things that we know that that people should do to be healthy are are helpful in supporting ACE two activity. Vitamin D. Mm. Um, if there's one nutrient that has been shown to impact the fate of people who have ACE two who have um, COVID nineteen, it is vitamin D. There are no studies that show that there's no effect of vitamin D and multiple studies showing effects of vitamin D, not only at what your vitamin D level is, but the effects of supplementation in uh, sometimes at high doses in critically ill people. Um, vitamin D, of course, does many things in the body, but it one of the things that it does is to increase ACE2 activity. Interesting. Um, there are a couple of herbs that are very strong, and I recommend these to my patients. Um, and they're herbs that have a very good track record in nutritional medicine. One is curcumin, which is a series of flavonoids in turmeric. Um, exposure to curcumin enhances ACE2 activity. And above and beyond that, Curcumin has been shown to have antiviral effects and anti-inflammatory effects. Um, and anything that you, that you can do to decrease the inflammation that accompanies COVID-19 is likely to be helpful. Let me ask you a question. There's an awful lot circulating about the importance now of elderberries, which of course they talked about with the flu. Has that been shown to be effective with this particular virus? Uh, elderberry hasn't been studied in COVID-19, but it, 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 um, it has two effects, both um, one, negative, one neg negative and the other positive. So I've been cautious with the way I recommend elderberry, especially to older people. Um, uh, once you get past the entry of the virus into cells, um, I don't think elderberry significantly impacts viral entry. However, once that virus gets into the cells, it takes over the machinery of the cell and it creates this protein, this large complex um, protein called a polyprotein, which very rapidly starts to um, cut itself up into smaller proteins that are called structural and non-structural proteins. And the non-structural proteins are very dangerous um, because the non-structural proteins of, um, of this virus um, turn off the immune response to the virus, damage cells, enable replication, and stimulate um, an, ex an excessive inflammatory response. Mm. The, within this polyprotein, there are two segments that, are, that, went, that act like the scissors to cut it up. And they are, they are proteases. 
um, and the main one, which is called the main protease of, uh, and it, it is common to all coronaviruses, um, is called 3CL protease. Elderberry inhibits the 3CL protease. So that's what I like about elderberry and why in the early days I was recommending elderberry for protection, prevention, but only for prevention because elderberry also increases the activity of a part of the immune system called TNF-alpha. And TNF-alpha is dangerous. It's especially dangerous if you have COVID-19. Mm. Um, and so um, many years ago when um, the, um, there were flu epidemics and I looked into the biology of influenza and came up with a treatment protocol, um, I realized that elderberry might be useful, but only in limited ways. And certainly I don't recommend with COVID-19, if you're sick, if you have symptoms, I do not recommend the use of elderberry. If you are not sick, but you might be exposed, um, especially among children, I recommend elderberry because it's one of the things that you can get kids to take. What about resveratrol, Dr. G? Right, right. That's the other one that I was going to mention. So resveratrol um, also stimulates ACE2 activity and in addition has anti-inflammatory and antiviral activity of its own, just like as curcumin does. I especially like the combination of curcumin and resveratrol um, and um, for prevention. So the protocol that I've worked out for my patients basically is three stages. If you are basically sheltered at home um, with low risk of exposure, there are a lot of things that you don't need to do or take, but that's a good time to build up ACE2 with exercise, with an anti-inflammatory polyphenol rich diet. That's a good time to be taking resveratrol and curcumin and vitamin D. Mm. Preparing for the fact that at some point, um, this, you're gonna encounter this virus and um, you wanna be in the best shape possible for um, dealing with it. Would you tell me, would you just share with my listeners some examples of polyphenol rich foods and herbs and spices? Uh, okay, sure. Um, I mean, a lot of most fruits, especially the, one of the ways, especially the, um, the, the darker fruits, blueberries, mm. strawberries, yeah. cherries, they're all rich in, in polyphenols and, and flavonoids. Um, they're, um, most vegetables are um, broccoli, for example, um, all, all of the foods that we think of as being healthy are polyphenol rich foods. And what about coffee, which is considered high in polyphenols if it's organic and mold free? Would yeah, coffee, coffee's choice? a high coffee and tea are high polyphenol um, beverages. And um, there are a lot of people who have looked at green tea and oolong tea for prevention. When it comes to treatment, though, actually black tea has the, the theoflavins in them are um, specifically turn off the 3CL protease the mm. same way that the elderberry flavonoids do. So I guess what you're telling everybody is that the protocols, whether it's diet or supplementation for prevention, is very different than if, in fact, you get 
the virus? Um, well, I make some changes um, or additions depending on, uh, on, on what stage. So I described what I recommend most strongly for, the, for people who are at low risk of exposure at the present time. And it, you know, it takes time to build these, um, uh, to build these up. So uh, I have found that um, people who have been on the protocol uh, for several weeks or months, um, when they um, get exposed to someone who has the virus, even if they might get infected, they don't get sick. Now, that's a limited experience. It's one physician. So I can't generalize. It's not as if they're controlled studies. But um, it has reinforced me to my experience has reinforced me to recommend that people start that long in advance of any kind of exposure, start taking those steps. Now, if you are exposed, um, either because of your work or um, your or school or travel or something else, there are additional things that I think are, um, are worthwhile. And um, one, of the, one of my favorites actually is a nasal spray. Um, any particular one? Yeah, I'm, I'm, there, there are about a dozen <laughs> under development um, around the world. What's been recognized about um, this virus is that its main portal of entry into the body is the nose, not the mouth or the lungs, but the nose. And that it, when it gets into the cells of the nose, the that line the nose, it kind of incubates there, increases in quantity, and then gets... Um, and from there, it is in a great position either to be inhaled into the lungs at a relatively high concentration, because um, there aren't that many um, lung receptors for the virus. So you need more virus in order to set up the infection in the lung. Also, from the, from the nose, it's in a great position to get into the brain. And we, know, we now know that the virus frequently gets into the brain and that a lot of the late side effects of COVID-19 are probably due to um, basically brain inflammation. Um, so um, proof of the fact that if you can prevent viral entry through the nose, you can decrease disease um, comes from basically two studies. There's a study that uh, got a lot of, was publicized pretty highly a few months ago in the New York Times because it was done at Columbia, but it was, wasn't done with humans. It was done with ferrets, animals that are considered a good model for human COVID-19 um, infection. Mm -hmm. And um, they basically put a bunch of ferrets and had them live together. Half of them were infected with COVID-19 and the other half weren't. And when they gave this specially designed nasal spray that they had, and it was a spray that's not commercially available yet, it was, um, it was designed to cover um, the spike protein so it couldn't attach to ACE2. None of the other ferrets who had gotten this nasal spray got infected. Mm. Um, there is a totally different spray that was developed by an Israeli company and is available in Israel and uh, in Europe now, I think, which is based on um, a kind of a gel that coats the lining of the nose and, and is acidic because of citric acid 
natural products. It's a powder that you spray in your nose. And that was tested in, um, in Israel over the Jewish New Year in a, in an, a highly ultra-Orthodox um, village where the rate of COVID-19 was 20% in the population. Wow. And so they took a few hundred people who were praying together in this synagogue um, for two days, no masks, um, no, no physical distancing. And um, they offered this nasal spray to them. And the people that used the nasal spray had an 80, a 78% reduction in the incidence of COVID-19 from those two days of um, praying together. Wow. The holidays. So it, it is pretty clear that the nose is very important. Now, none of these sprays are available in the uh, commercially in the U.S. And um, there are the University of Arizona, University of Pittsburgh, um, uh, uh, UCSF, um, Australian companies. I mean, there, there are different research teams that are developing various kinds of sprays. Um, to use the only um, there are only two that are actually that can that people in the U.S. can get now. Um, there's an iodine spray and mouthwash. Um, this is not something I think people are going to use on a daily basis because it it's not only it costs four dollars an application. It's not very pleasant. I mean, mm -hmm. it's something that athletes might use before a, a game, but. Um, uh, but you're not going to you're not going to use it in your everyday life. Um, I designed one based upon some research that I've seen, um, which uses a drug called heparin. Now, you, you'll remember that I said that heparin, which is spelled a little bit differently than the drug, um, coats the outside of cells and that the spike protein binds to the heparin sulfate on the outside. Yeah. Of cells. Yes. Right. Well, heparin. Um, has been used as a drug in medicine for decades. It's an anticoagulant. Yes. Uh, it's injected into the veins or into the soft tissues. And um, it's a lot of people who have COVID-19 are given heparin to prevent blood clots. Um, and it's used to treat blood clots as well. Um, heparin, the drug, is almost identical to heparin sulfate that coats the cells. And the spike protein binds to it just as strongly as it does to the heparin on your cells. And if you and so I designed um, a nasal spray just based on taking commercial heparin that any doctor can prescribe and diluting it, which any doctor or pharmacy can do, turning it into a nasal spray and using it for the purpose of neutralizing the virus. If the virus encounters the heparin spray, it will, um, the heparin molecules will attach to the polyarginine and they won't be able to attach to the heparin sulfate on the, that lines the cells. Um, and actually one of the researchers whose work inspired me to do this is teamed up with um, a, a pharmacology um, team at the University of Mississippi, and they're working on making this commercially available. Um, Do you but, sell it currently? Well, I don't sell it. I don't sell it, but you can. Um, there are there are pharmacies that I refer patients to, and I describe the in 
um, the document, the coronavirus guidebook, I described the concentrations that I use based upon what the research literature shows. Excellent. So that's the coronavirus guidebook at, at drgallon.com. Dr. Gallon, everybody yeah. needs to see that. Any doctor, any compounding pharmacy, um, any pharmacy that wants to is able to make this um, for people, but you need a doctor's prescription for it. Um, and I recommend that people use it if they're going, like, let's say um, you're going to, you're going, you're going to the store to shop, um, use it when you leave your apartment or your house and you can use it again when you get back. Cause I haven't worked out how long it's active. Um, the university of Mississippi people claim they're working on one that you only have to use once a day, but I, I'm recommending that people use it more than once. Um, so it, it won't work. I don't expect that it would work the day after an exposure. This is something to be used preventive at the time of exposure or very soon thereafter. Now, you haven't mentioned zinc. Is that part of your protocol? Well, I sometimes use zinc. Uh, the, there, there are a lot of ideas about zinc and um, the, the zinc being antiviral and that quercetin, which I wanted to talk about next, by the way. Yes, excellent. Um, acts to bring zinc into cells. I, I'm, um, I'm skeptical about some of the zinc arguments. What I will say about zinc is that um, I do a lot of work with zinc in my practice. Um, and I always measure plasma zinc levels. And a good third of, at least a third of my patients are deficient in zinc. So, um, and my patients tend to be healthier than the average American in, in terms of their diet. So um, it's very likely that a significant percentage of people in this country are zinc deficient. Uh, diabetes have, diabetics have an increased need for zinc. Um, certain blood pressure medications deplete zinc from your body. So um, I think there is, and zinc is very important for immune function. So uh, I think there's a real argument for um, people supplementing with zinc. The concerns I have about zinc are its number one side effect is nausea. And um, that makes it hard to take. If you experience that, it makes it hard to take the other components of my protocols. Nausea is also an early symptom of COVID-19. Um, and there are some studies indicating that um, zinc may have some undesirable effects on the gut microbiome, specifically with regard to a type of bacterium called Clostridium difficile or C. Oh. diff. Oh my God. Um, and these, this is mostly based on animal studies, but you know, it's just an example of the complexity of things. I was very disappointed to discover this a few years <laughs> ago because I really kind of love zinc, but um, zinc, it, a diet that's rich in zinc or enriched with zinc, supplemental zinc basically, makes Clostridium difficile more toxic and it enhances the production of toxin by C. diff. And um, I have seen people, so if you're going to be taking antibiotics, I do not recommend supplementing with zinc. Um, and so I'm very cautious with the ways in which I use zinc. In fact, I was consulted by someone um, back in the summer 
who um, had a history of C. diff infection, but was in total, had no symptoms, seems to seem to have um, totally controlled it, uh, was reading about how important it was to take zinc for preventing COVID-19 or for treating it, um, put herself on zinc and experienced uh, relapse so um, of the C. diff. So I think, um, I, I think caution should be used with zinc. I don't think it's a universal supplement. There is a study indicating that people with low zinc levels who had COVID-19 did very poorly, but their levels were um, astonishingly low. I mean, they were severely deficient and just being sick will reduce zinc levels. Um, so um, I, I am not convinced that zinc is essential for everybody or that the reason, the, the reasons by which uh, hydroxychloroquine or quercetin might help is because they bring zinc into the cells. In fact, um, copper is a much stronger antiviral mineral than zinc. And one of the effects of zinc supplementation is to reduce copper. Um, so I think, I think there are a lot of unanswered questions there. And it's not something that um, uh, within my practice, I pay a lot of attention to zinc, but I'm, I'm not recommending that everyone supplement with zinc to prevent or treat COVID-19. But you do like quercetin. Right. I, I like quercetin a lot. However, there are complexities with quercetin also. Um, and that's one of the things about this virus. Every week, something new comes up. So quercetin um, does several things. One, it is able to interfere with the attachment of the S protein to ACE2. It kind of comes between them like some friendly bystander breaking up a fight. Um, uh, it also um, is able to inhibit another um, protein, the activity of another protein that um, one research group has shown plays a role after furin cuts the S protein. Um, the spike, pro the whole virus kind of attaches to this protein, which holds it in place. So instead of three steps, there are four steps and quercetin can interfere with that. And finally, quercetin, like elderberry, uh, also inhibits the activity of the 3CL protease. So there are a number of good things that quercetin does. Um, quercetin, however, does seem to block the activity of ACE2, which I don't think is desirable. Now, the, um, whether that happens with repeated quercetin use or long-term quercetin use or not is, has, just hasn't been looked at. The study that showed this, it was a single exposure to quercetin in a test tube. Um, so the way that I'm recommending people use quercetin now is preventively, if you are in a situation in which you might be exposed, quercetin should be part of your supplementation. Um, if you're sick, I'm not recommending quercetin because I, I think you need all the ACE2 you can get. But um, I think there's a lot of reason to believe that quercetin is useful for prevention, especially in a situation where you, where you might be exposed, not the kind of long-term um, prevention of people who are sheltering, 
in, for which I recommend vitamin D, resveratrol, and curcumin. But for people who are having more exposures, quercetin is, is something that I believe should be helpful. And there was one study um, that um, supports that. It was actually a clinical study done in, um, trying to, um, I'm trying to remember, somewhere in the Middle East. And um, they, um, they, they took healthcare workers and they gave, um, they offered them a supplement of quercetin with bromelain and vitamin C. It was 250 milligrams of each twice a day. Uh, they considered the quercetin to be the active ingredient. The vitamin C and bromelain were there to increase quercetin absorption. And um, there was a significant decrease in people getting infected with the virus. Now, there are some limitations to that study. The way that they checked whether people had gotten infected or not was by looking at antibodies. So after three months of supplementation or not supplementation, they rechecked everybody's antibodies and they found that hardly anybody who had been taking the quercetin had developed antibodies, whereas um, 10 or 15% of the people who hadn't been had developed antibodies to COVID-19, which would suggest that, um, that those people had um, gotten the infection and the others taking quercetin had not. Um, they didn't really look at how sick people got and they didn't randomize who got the quercetin. That is, people had the choice. Do you want to take quercetin? Don't you? So when you're self-selecting what group you're going to be in, there may be other variables. Um, nonetheless, it was an encouraging study, but preliminary. So um, I think it makes sense for quercetin to be part of a preventive regimen among people like healthcare workers who might be exposed to the virus. So on to the drugs that are out there, because ivermectin is, is, is a medicine that I learned about actually initially from you to get rid of, uh, I think it was threadworms from a mutual patient. So ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, what's your stance? Okay, well, when um, back in March, when, I, when the data on hydroxychloroquine started to emerge, it was very exciting. I mean, in a test tube, hydroxychloroquine uh, did a great job of um, preventing the cells from getting infected with the virus. The problem is that the hydroxychloroquine results have been very mixed in all of the clinical trials that have been done since then. And um, I used, I've used it with some patients back in this early spring, and I didn't find that it was superior to any of the supplements that I was using in terms of outcome. Uh, and I think the reason is that um, hydroxychloroquine works by a mechanism that is not relevant to SARS-CoV-2 when it's infecting um, people. And it's a drug that has a lot of side effects. That is, you can, you can make it work in a test tube because you can change the mode of cell entry in a test tube. It depends on what cells you're looking at um, and, and how they're engineered. Um, but in real life, I don't think hydroxychloroquine is a, is, a, is a great breakthrough. Ivermectin, on the other hand, maybe. And in the few studies that have been done that compare ivermectin with hydroxychloroquine, Ivermectin is just 
um, way more effective in the prevention and treatment than hydroxychloroquine. And it's a much safer drug. Um, so ivermectin is a drug that's been around for decades and is basically used to treat worms. Um, and it's given to young children. It's given, you know, it's given to people at um, every age in any state of health. There are places in South, South America where whole towns and counties will be dewormed with ivermectin periodically. Mm -hmm. Mm. And um, so ivermectin does kill um, SARS-CoV-2 in a test tube. It also is strongly anti-inflammatory. Um, the problem that some docs have had with it is that the dose that's needed to kill it, to kill the virus in a test tube is much higher than it's easy to get in human blood. And so you, you have to use a dose that's much higher than the standard anti-worm doses. The, there have been probably 30 to 40 publications looking at ivermectin in, um, in COVID-19. None of them have shown no effect, but that doesn't mean that there's definitely an effect because um, most of them are observational studies. What I can say about it is it definitely works better than hydroxychloroquine um, because they've been compared head to head. Um, it also, I think, has a plays a, a real role, potential role in prevention. The only randomized control trials that have been done were done in Egypt. And what they found was when people with COVID-19 were admitted to a hospital. If the healthcare workers taking care of them and their family members, the family members of the patients were given ivermectin, um, there was a dramatic reduction in the frequency with which those people would uh, become infected with the virus. And uh, so I think in that setting, there's very strong evidence for benefits of ivermectin. Uh, and the dose that was used would be, if you were to take your body weight in pounds and you take 10% of that and then go up a little bit, um, that's the number of milligrams of ivermectin you would need. Uh, and they use a protocol where you take it as a single dose. And typically it's gonna be somewhere between four and 10 pills of ivermectin, depending on your size. And um, then you repeat it 72 hours later. Um, that's the strongest evidence that I've seen. There, is, there are some studies indicating treatment benefits with ivermectin, and I think it's promising. Um, but they're not definitive the way this randomized prevention study was. How interesting. Um, so as our interview comes to an end, because I know how very busy you are, and I want everybody to go to drgallon.com, and can they download your coronavirus guidebook? Um, yeah. Um, can you download it? That's a good question. I, I don't know if I actually put that feature in. There, it is ver there are loads of references in it, I want, and you I can want certainly read it. See, I want everybody to go there and to share. Uh, I think you can download it, because I, um, I know of people who have said, that they distributed to, to their friends and colleagues. Um, and the feedback that I've gotten from scientists and health professionals is that 
it is the most comprehensive document about COVID-19 that anyone has seen. Just in our short podcast, I can certainly appreciate that. So what's up next for Dr. Leo Gallen? Um, Well, I'm treating patients full time. Um, I am following this pandemic full time also and um, constantly revising new treatments. And I'm and I'm working on trying to uh, develop innovative approaches, especially to to prevention. Um, there are other opportunities in terms of nasal sprays. Uh, heparin will never be available over the counter. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at things that might be in that would be safe and easy to use. So you now practice telemedicine. Do you have room on your dance card for more patients, Dr. Leo Galland? Some, yeah. I, I mean, I, I try to accommodate people um, who um, I think really need kind of experience that I have. Oh, without a doubt. So people can get in touch with you by going to drgallengott.com. Um Well, yeah, well, there is a, there is a contact um, uh, sheet there, uh, a tab for contact. And, um, you know, which tells you where, what the email and phone numbers are. Excellent. So I want to thank you so much for being my most esteemed guest on the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. I wish you all the very best. May you be, continue to heal and to heal people of every imaginable manifestation of COVID-19 and then some. I wish you well. I wish you a happy new year, a little belated happy new year. And I'll tell my listeners to go directly to drleogallon.com. No, it's drgallon.com. Dr. No, Gallon. Just- D-R-G-A-L-L-A-N-D. Well, you heard it directly from Dr. Gallon. It's drgallon.com. And I thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. 